On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Thus far in Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry has mainly been about come and see. Crowds have come to see him preach, teach, perform miracles, cast out demons, heal and help those who are suffering and needy. And today in Luke 6, 12 through 16, Jesus is going to call his 12 disciples to transition from come and see to go and die. And this is an incredibly important sermon. These men's lives will change and history will change with it. We praise God for the come and see opportunities. We like to give things away online. We like to invite people to church services. We like to invite people to community groups. We like to invite people to events, relationships, formal and informal ministry. And we're all about come and see, come and check it out, come and hear some Bible, meet some people, see some changed lives, get to know us and what Jesus is doing. But at some point, and you need to know this, I'm not going to be a false salesman. At some point, to be a Christian, you've got to transition from come and see to go and die. And that is you just can't watch other people walk with Jesus. You have to go walk with him. You can't just allow other people to serve you. You need to serve as well. You can't just allow other people to fund ministry. You need to give generously. At some point, the come and see season needs to end and the go and die season has to begin. And that's exactly what we find at this strategic juncture of Luke's gospel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at him calling the 12 to a go and die life from a come and see experience to a go and die life. And so from this, we're going to pull out what I'll call 11 leadership lessons from 12 disciples. I thought it was catchy, and so I'm going to stick with it. And we'll look at these in succession. And the whole point is this. This sermon isn't just about you. It's about us. We want to have a church that follows the leadership example of Jesus. How did he pick his men? How did he lead his men? How did he train his men? How did he deploy his men? How did Jesus organize his ministry? Because we want to follow in Jesus' example by Jesus' empowerment through the Holy Spirit, and we want to have a church that is patterned after Jesus' ministry. That's what we're all about. Yeah, we want to see people meet Jesus. We want to see the church grow. We want to start other campuses. We want to start other churches. We want to continue to mature and grow in every way. But most importantly, we want to do that in a way that honors Jesus, obeys Jesus, imitates Jesus. So we'll pull 11 lessons from him selecting his 12 disciples. Number one, pray humbly, then proceed boldly. Here's what Jesus does. Before choosing the 12, what does he do? Luke 6 tells us he spent a whole night in prayer. Silence of solitude. Today, this would be shut off the phone, shut down the computer, stop Twittering, Facebooking, blogging, right? Social media addiction, shut it all down. Don't ask everybody, what do you think I should do? 
I'll post it on your wall. Everybody, give me your advice. Just shut it all down and go get with God. Silence the solitude. Bring a pen, a paper, a Bible. Get some time with God and talk to him. All right, Lord, I've got an important decision to make. I'm here humbly requesting you help me. Speak to me through scriptures, the Holy Spirit, conscience. Help me know what to do. This is exceedingly important because we live in a world where hurry, worry, and busy dominate. No time for solitude. No time for silence. And so rather than going to God, we sometimes even go to technology to ask everybody else, what should I do? Give me advice. Give me feedback. And that's not always evil or bad, but Jesus' example is start with prayer. Life, ministry, major decisions have to be bathed and birthed in prayer. That's the way it works. And it says previously in Luke that Jesus has done this before. So this is a fairly common occurrence for him. He's got to choose 12 apostles. That's a big deal. So he's going to spend a whole night in prayer, looking across all those who are following him and coming to hear him preach and teach. Father, what about this one? What about that guy? What about this person? What about that one? Judas, you sure? We need to talk about that guy. Not so sure I want him on the team. So when you declare, I'm going to be a member of this church, I want to serve in this ministry, paid or unpaid. I want to marry this person. I want to go to this college. I want to get this degree. I want to do this career. I want to live in this house. I want to take on this responsibility. We're going to birth these children. Before you make those big decisions, we're going to deploy these leaders. Pray. Because what happens is most people pray after they've made the decision. Like, oh no, Lord, help, fix it. Whoops, right? And that's, and God is a gracious God and he can and does often show up and help. But it's so much better to seek God before making the decision and the resulting devastation. And once you pray humbly and you get time with God, okay, God, this is who I am. This is what you want me to do. This is the decision I need to make. Then you could proceed boldly. No, this is what I need to do. So the Bible says, got time with the Lord. And then I double-checked with spiritual authority and godly people to make sure that I actually heard the Lord, not the voice in my head. And yeah, I, I have conviction here. I have a sense of calling and I know what I'm supposed to do, so I'm gonna do it. Those who pray humbly can proceed boldly. Those who do not pray humbly have a hard time proceeding boldly. It gets hard, there's opposition, life, ministry, gets difficult. I'm sort of like, am I doing the right thing? Should I have even started this? Should I have volunteered for this ministry? Should I be pursuing this life course? I don't know. Maybe I made a mistake. Crisis ensues. Gracie and I, before we launched Mars Hill, and before we even announced that we officially would, we felt called to it. God had called us both to it, but we took some time a week in fasting and prayer just to double check. Okay, Lord, double checking. Is this it? Yes. Okay, cool. We're in this together. And we're going to do it. And there's been some hard seasons, tough seasons, but we know, hey, this is what God asked us to do. Also, I prayed a lot before I married Grace and God convicted me, revealed to me, yeah, marry that girl. Okay. Every marriage hits hard spots. Every life hits hard spots. Every career hits hard spots. Every ministry, paid or unpaid, hits hard spots. And when you've prayed humbly, you can proceed boldly. You're like, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to keep going because I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And I trust God to get me through it. Number two, get the men. 
This does not mean we don't get the women, but we want to emphasize getting the men. In Christianity Day, 60% of those who attend church are women. 11 to 13 million more women in church than men. Say, praise God, the ladies love Jesus. Where are the men? What are they doing? Bad things, usually. And so what Jesus does, he goes after the men. He gets the men. He gets the men first. He looks across the hundreds, thousands who are following him in ministry, coming to hear him teach, part of the come and see ministry. And he chooses 12, all men. Senior leadership is reserved for men. Let me explain this. Many of you will disagree with this. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. But Jesus is consistent with the Old Testament, where the highest spiritual authority were the priests. They were male descendants of Aaron. That was a requirement. Jesus comes along, picks senior leaders, 12 apostles, 12 men. Some say, oh, well, Jesus really wanted women in leadership, and he had women in his ministry. He did have women in his ministry. He did have women who were friends of his. He did have women that he taught. He did have women that served alongside of him, but he didn't appoint any of them to apostle. If he wanted to revolutionize things, that's all he needed to do, and he didn't. And he didn't make a mistake because he spent the whole night in prayer. He did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. And then that sets up the precedent for the New Testament church. So Old Testament, New Testament, Ministry of Jesus, beginning to end, senior leaders, only, always men, authors of all books of the Bible, men. It doesn't mean that women aren't gifted in leadership, can't teach and use their gifts. They just cannot do so in that office. The office of deacon, however, is open for men and women. Back to the story, Jesus picks 12 men, 12 men. There are reasons that we have this position. And it's not because we like all the criticism and controversy. It's not like I woke up one day and was like, I would like to get whacked like a pinata. I know what will do it. Male pastors, that will do it. That will ensure that I get criticized until I die. I'm going to go with that because it's a shortcut to getting beat like a pinata. I didn't pick that position. God wrote that position in the Bible. So we hold to that position. And it's a position that quite frankly is the position that Jesus operated by. He wasn't scared of anyone. He didn't mind breaking social taboos. He did increase great liberation for women, but he didn't appoint any of them as apostles. Number three, past results often reveal future performance. And here's the deal. Jesus looks out across his ministry and he picks leaders who are already doing stuff. And if you've never done anything, yeah, something radical could change, but the odds are tomorrow you're not gonna wake up and start doing a lot. If you're not faithful, you're probably not going to be faithful. I mean, there's something to be said for consistency. What Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. Shouldn't you first do anything? Humbly serve, find something to do, show us that you could show up two weeks in a row, find your pants, you know, just knock a few things off your to-do list, and then we'll talk about making you a leader. Because people walk in, they're like, I want to be in charge of something. All right. You can be in charge of you. We're going to start there. We're going to start there. And if you nail that, we'll move on, okay? But Jesus doesn't just pick people who have never done anything. Some of these guys have run businesses. They're all following him in ministry. They're serving informally. The ministry's grown. Now it's time to officialize the leadership. And he picks those who have already performed. They've already done something. Whatever God has for you, you got to start by doing something. 
You got to start by doing something. There's a lot of people who walk in and they're totally fired up for two weeks and then it's over. I never see them again. Past performance indicates future performance. We want to see somebody who's been doing something before we unleash them to do something else. Number four, train the call, do not call the train. It's interesting when Jesus went to call his leaders, and he did call them. He didn't get a committee. They didn't take a congregational vote. They didn't do nominations. Jesus called them. Jesus still calls people into ministry. We believe that. Acts 20 says that the Holy Spirit chooses the leaders in the church. He appoints the overseers. So God still picks leaders. Jesus still picks leaders through the indwelling, empowering, calling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus trained the called. So we don't make leaders. God does. We recognize them and then train them. And for you, some of you will have a calling. And sometimes your calling will be like mine. Mine was obvious. God spoke to me. Mary Grace, plant churches, train men, preach the Bible. Okay, that's what I'm doing. For some of you, you'll be reading the Bible and you'll see something or somebody and it's all of a sudden like that just leaps out. You're like, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to give my life to. Or you meet somebody in the Bible. You're like, I'm like them. I want to do what they're doing. That's what I need to do. That could be your calling. And sometimes it's trial and error. You're like, I tried that. I'm no good at it. I tried that. I'm no good at it. I tried that. Hey, that actually works. I'm pretty good at that and I like that. God seems to bless it when I serve in that area. Calling also can be just that deep-rooted sense of have to in your gut. It can be the Holy Spirit. So we say, I have to help abuse victims. I have to help the poor. I have to help single moms. I have to help kids. I have to help men learn to be fathers, right? There's something in your gut. <coughs> Excuse me, and it's there from God. It's the beginning of a calling. And it starts with a real passion. Maybe there's certain things in life, you kind of ebb and flow, and the enthusiasm is hot and cold, but this is something that's consistent. See, for me, I see it this way. How do you know you're called to something? Well, part of it is God gives you an innate desire. So it says in 1 Peter 5, don't lead because people made you lead. Lead because you desire to, that you want to. That's why Paul says elsewhere, if anyone desires the office of overseer, it's a noble thing they desire. It's a good thing to have a desire. So I was talking to a new Christian recently and they were unsure about God's calling on their life. I don't know what God wants me to do. Got all these new decisions to make in life now that I'm a new Christian. And they were very kind of panicked about it. What do I do? I said, don't worry about God's calling. First, worry about God. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I said, are you enjoying the Lord? They said, yeah, I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm in a community group and I'm reading good books and I'm repenting of sin and I'm seeing the ways that I'm not like Jesus and my life is changing. And yeah, I feel like there's momentum and I'm, I'm really excited about Jesus and I'm growing. Great. This person looked at me and said, well, what do I do? I said, do whatever you want. They're like, what? Do whatever I want. Yeah. Because if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll put desires on your heart so that God's desires become your desires. Augustine said it this way, love God and do whatever you please. I said, what do you like? They're like, well, I like serving people and I'm pretty extroverted. And, you know, I like welcoming people. So you want to be a great? Yeah. Love to be a greeter. 
And I love hospitality and I love getting people together. So someday you'd like to be a community group leader? That'd be great. I'm not ready yet, but maybe I could apprentice and get ready. Yeah, that'd be a great idea. How does that sound? That sounds really fun. Should I do it? Do you want to? Yeah. Well, how do I know if it's God's will or my will? Well, if you're enjoying the Lord, his will becomes your will. He's glorified, you're satisfied, other people are helped. Everybody wins. That's ministry. It's more about our heart enjoying the Lord and then we'll want to do what he wants us to do. You need to know this. I like my job. I love to preach and teach the Bible. There are quite frankly a lot of things that I get excited about that I lose excitement for. Studying the Bible, teaching the Bible my whole life, ever since I got saved at age 19, pretty fired up about that. People ask me all the time, like, how do you study that much? I like it. It helps. Right? Unlike some jobs, which you're like, I don't like it. That's hard. And maybe God's called you to do a hard job. But when it comes to ministry, particularly for those of you who are volunteering, it's a great opportunity to say, I want to do something that I like and I'm good at and helps people and glorifies God. And I just get to pick something that fits. That's all. Jesus trained the called. These 12 were already part of his ministry. They're already serving They're already following him. They're already responding to him. They're already submitting to him. So he starts training them. All right, we're going to teach you guys. Open your Bibles. We're going to have some discussion. We're going to run some classes. You're going to do some experiences. We're going to let you go out and pray, cast out a few demons, uh, help the sick. You kids are going to get your feet wet now. It's going to be busy time. He doesn't call the train. And this is where ministry has gone wrong in the modern era. Jesus didn't go to where they train the scribes or up to the temple where they train the priest. He didn't go to the equivalent of the Bible college or the seminary and say, all right, who's head of the class? All right, who's Pharisee of the month? I want that kid. That's who I want. He didn't do that because you can be trained but not called. You can go to school for something that God hasn't asked you to do. And you've got all the credentials, but you don't have any of the courage. And I'm not against training. I've got a master's degree in theology and I'm not against seminary or Bible college. We love to train people, but calling precedes training. Has God burdened you for something? Do you want to do it? Will you do it? Great, we'll help you do it. But see, people can help train, but only God can call. If God hasn't called you, we can't call you. Many of you need to be careful. You'll think, I'm going to go get a degree for ministry. Do ministry. Volunteer. Check it out. Let us then help train you and find a slot to get you developed, but it may not be your thing. There's a controversial report some years ago that said that upwards of three-fourths of those who graduate from Bible college and seminary go into ministry and leave within the first five years never to return. means they spend years training for something that they're not going to do. Why? Because there's a difference between calling the trained into ministry and training the called for ministry. It starts with a calling. Number five, weird teams are the best. Weird teams are the best because number one, they're fun. And number two, they complement one another. One of the great weaknesses in leadership development theory, and here's the truth. We like to read business books and leadership books, and I subscribe to the Harvard Business Review and Wired and Fast Company. I mean, I like it all. But the Bible and Jesus, that's where we really go to learn. And other things can help us learn about what are the, 
what others are thinking in leadership. But here's the big idea. If you have a weakness, should you work on it if you're a leader? And this could be ministry or business. Or do you find people who are strong where you're weak? Conventional prevailing wisdom has been, you got to work on your weaknesses. Eh, maybe a little bit, but you know what? You need to find somebody who's better at things than you. Get a weird team of people who are really different. Everybody looks the same, watches the same TV shows, listens to the same bands, wears the same clothes, uses the same colloquialisms, has the same everything. You're probably in a cult. I just hate to tell you that. And the problem with the cult is you never know till the last day. So it's kind of a disappointment. (laughs) A, A weird team's the best team, right? So on Jesus' team, it's kind of a weird team. John's young. Peter and other guys are older. John's apparently single. Uh, Some other guys are married, have kids. It's kind of a weird team. 11 of them are country boys. One's from the city. Judas didn't represent us real well. It's a weird team. It's a really kind of weird team. On this team is a guy named Simon the Zealot. We read in Luke 6. He hates the Roman government because it's ruling over God's people. And he's kind of a punk rock anarchist kind of guy. He's a Fugazi fan. He's that guy. And so he just wants to overthrow the Roman government. He's like, I hate the government. Down with the government. He's that guy. He's got the anarchist patch on his sleeve. He's that guy. And then on the team as well as Matthew, the tax collector, who works for the Roman government, ripping off God's people. And these two guys are on the same team. It's the anti-government anarchist activist and the IRS auditor. Like, seriously? The guy with the gun and the guy who tucks his shirt in, they're on the same team? Yeah. How, that's a weird team. That's a very weird team. Some of these guys are fishermen. One's a tax collector. At least four guys. We don't know what they did. Some are brothers. Some aren't. It's a funky little weird team. But it works because they're different. And they complement one another's strengths and weaknesses. Some of these guys had business experience. Some of them had political experience. Some had leadership experience. Some of them already had pre-existing social networks and relationships. Just so you know this, the best teams are the weird teams. When Jesus is the center, you get a weird team. Because see, if you're Christ-oriented and not cause-oriented, you get community and not affinity. If you're cause-oriented, you get affinity. All the people who agree with you come together. If you're Christ-oriented, people who disagree on a whole lot of things, they come together. That's actual community. What passes for community in our day is pretty much affinity. Everybody like me hangs out and does what I like. Community is people totally unlike me and don't have much in common with me, come together with me because we're Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. And as we're all walking closer to Jesus as disciples of, followers of Jesus, we happen to get closer together and become a team. That's what's cool about Christianity. People who, I mean, you guys know this. In your community groups, your social networks, you're like, man, my Christian friends, I would never pick these people. I don't have anything in common with them. Bipedal, upright, other than those two factors, we got nothing in common. But you know what? They love Jesus, I love Jesus. And you know what? I love them. And together we make each other more sanctified. And together when we serve Jesus, it goes better. So praise God for a weird, diverse, collective team of different kind of people. So on our team, there's artists, there's accountants, people who are good with pictures, people who are good with numbers, all important, very vital. Weird teams are the best teams. You see that with Jesus. It's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird team. It's not picking the guys you'd expect. 
It's picking a bunch of no names and no bodies. Number six, under authority before in authority. And here in Luke 6, 12 through 16, it uses two words, disciple, apostle. It says he took those who were disciples and he commissioned them as apostles. A disciple literally means a humble follower, servant of. Jesus is teaching, they're listening. Jesus is commanding, they're obeying. Jesus is leading, they're following. They're under authority. And Jesus had a lot of disciples, hundreds, thousands of people come out to hear him. They're all part of the come and see. And he picks those who are under authority and he appoints a handful of them into authority. And here's why this is so important. Some people love to be in authority, but they don't like to be under authority. They want to boss other people around, but they don't take orders well. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, so humble yourself, right? So the Bible says, come under some authority. Those who are above the law, those who are the exception to the rule, those who get to do whatever they want, they're dangerous. They're very dangerous. They like being in authority. They don't like being under authority, and you've got to be good at both to be a leader, Because when you go into authority, you still need to be under authority. Being under authority is something for everybody, including the leaders. And if you're going to be in authority, you've got to be under authority. So he takes those who are under authority, disciples, and he gives them a new title and job description and office. He calls them apostles. That means one who is sent. This is like an ambassador. The the language here is like a king who rules a mighty kingdom. And he selects someone to be his emissary or his ambassador and sends them on a mission into another nation, into another kingdom, representing their authority and speaking on their behalf. And so let me explain apostle. This is very important. First of all, Jesus is the apostle. Hebrews 3.1 says he's our apostle. So when God the Father wanted to send a representative ambassador emissary from heaven to earth, to represent his kingdom, he sent God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our apostle. He's the sent one. That's why he says repeatedly, particularly in John's gospel, the Father has sent me. He's the apostle, the sent one. And then there's the office of apostle. We'll call this capital A apostle. And those are the 12 hand-selected by Jesus. So their number's fixed. Ephesians 2.20 says they set the foundation of the church with the prophets and apostles. That's who's at the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The apostles included Judas. He's going to betray Jesus and hang himself. Uh, Another man will be selected early on in the book of Acts. One of the requirements is that he would need to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is later added as an apostle. Jesus comes down and commissions him as an apostle as well. And so we see that the apostles are a set number of people hand-selected by the Lord Jesus, eyewitnesses to his resurrection, given a very special authoritative designation, some of them actually writing books of the New Testament. That's the level of authority they enjoy. To that degree, there are not apostles today like that. No one has that kind of authority. No one could say, well, you know, Peter and me were at the same level. John and I were were at the same level of spiritual authority. No, you're not. But under the capital A apostle, there's the lowercase a apostle, and that's not the office, but the gift. And the gift of apostle is one that the Bible includes. 
You can read the gifts list. It does list it, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12. It's listed in the various gift lists. It's a gift. It's a spiritual gift, like serving or teaching or administration. It's a capacity. It's a capacity that God gives to men and women. God gives spiritual gifts to men and women, teaching, leadership, whatever it is. And there's a difference between the gift and the office. And so the gift of apostle includes a couple things, like the ability to cross-cultural ministry. So you could go into another country and be a missionary, start a church plant, start a campus plant. Sometimes it's a movement leader who works across multiple churches, multiple pastors, writes, travels, preaches, speaks, teaches, sometimes internationally. This is one of my gifts. Okay, but just because you have the gift of apostle doesn't mean anything unless you qualify to be an elder or a deacon. Because you can have a gift and not have character. You can have a gift and not be qualified. So we hold the offices are different than the gifts, but the gift of apostle does exist. We believe in that. And then there's false apostles. The Bible talks about false apostles. People who are sent by Satan, not Jesus. They minister by the power of demons, not the Holy Spirit. They tell lies, not the truth. They lead people astray, not toward God. So he takes these 12 who are under authority. He positions them into authority. You are now apostles and you're gonna lead. And then there's gifted people under them that have the gift of apostle. And part of our job is to keep people from false apostles, leading people astray. But here's the big idea. Some of you bounce from church to church, ministry to ministry, because you just don't want to be under authority. You don't want anybody to know you or what you're doing. You don't want to become a member. You don't want to join anything. You don't want to be held accountable to anything. You just want to live in this come and see, come and see, come and see. But let me tell you, it's an immaturity is what it is. It's an immaturity. And today I invite you to go and die to settle in somewhere, to commit to something, to make it ours and yours and to come under authority and then grow and be trained and maybe one day God would have you to be in authority. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds, maybe thousands of people at this point that I've met, they bounce from church to church to church, ministry to ministry to ministry because they want to be in authority and they don't want to qualify. They don't want to get trained. They don't want to prove themselves. They just want to walk up to the leader and say, you need to do this. Obey me. I'm in charge. Now they don't say I'm in charge, but they act like it. Really? You're walking off the street and start bossing people around? It doesn't work like this anywhere else in the world. You can't do this in the Marines. You can't do this in a college. You can't just walk up to your professor. I disagree with the degree. We need to do it this way now. No. Sit down, learn. Be under authority. Prove yourself. If you demonstrate faithfulness, someday you can be in authority. And when you get in authority, you can make some changes. Some of you love the idea of being in authority. You resist at the thought of being under authority. Please don't pursue being in authority until you've had a season where you've proven yourself under authority. Number seven, every team needs a leader, okay? The disciples, the apostles now, they're a team. Obviously, their leader is Jesus. Ultimately, he's the leader of every team in any ministry or any Christian group. But the human leader is Peter. The human leader is Peter. How do we know? 
Every time that the disciples, apostles are listed in Acts and the Gospels, and they appear many times, here's what happens. Judas is always listed last. Not a lot of, right, not a lot of, not a lot of enthusiasm for Judas. And Peter's always listed first. You know why? He's the leader. He's the first among equals. Every team needs a leader. Now, some of you are already bored. You're like, what does this sermon have to do? It's about us. It's about our church. Do you want this to be a good, holy, healthy, helpful church? Do you want it based on Jesus' ministry? Do you want it biblical? Do you want to do things that Jesus did? Do you want to give your life to what Jesus gave his life to? Here's why it matters. I love this church. We, we want this to be the best church that it can possibly be by the grace of God. And here, a big issue is leadership. And see, you guys grew up in a culture. This, this is a sick world that hates leadership. Everybody thinks they should be able to text message the president and boss him around. I mean, it's a weird day. From social networking to continual comments to consumerism, People don't want to follow a leader. All they want to do is criticize a leader. They don't want to even recognize leadership. And some Christians will even say, I don't believe in leadership. Really? Do you believe in God? Because God's in charge. So you've got to recognize at least one leader. And even the way God has organized himself in the Trinity, one God, three persons, all equal but submissive, is that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, And God the Son submits to God the Father, recognizes him as the leader. Though they're equal, there's what is called subordinationism. He submit, Jesus submits himself. So he says, the Father sent me. I speak what the Father tells me to say. I do what the Father tells me to do. And even when Jesus prays, he says, Father, not my will, but what? What's the line? Your will be done. That's submitting to the leader. That's what it is. And then the Bible says in John that God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit. So in the character of God, there's leadership within the Trinity. So this plays itself out in the government of home. Mom, dad, the kids are equal, but dad's supposed to lovingly, humbly, sacrificially lead. In the church, elders, members, deacons are equal, but the elders are supposed to lead. In a serving team, everybody's equal, but the team leader leads. So there's, there's teams that have leaders And leaders, according to ministry, they do doctrine, what do we believe and not believe, direction, where are we going and not going, and discipline, what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. That's what a lot of leadership is, doctrine, direction, discipline. And in saying this, we look back to the text, Peter's always listed first. He's the leader. Jesus appoints him as the leader. And when the day of Pentecost comes after Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the grave... It says that all the apostles are together. Jesus is ascended into heaven. And the Bible says it this way in the opening chapters of Acts. Peter stepped forward to preach. You know why? He's the leader. Okay? We don't make leaders. We recognize the leaders that the Holy Spirit has chosen. Some people, you're following them. You're listening to them. You're learning from them. They're the leader. So every team needs a leader. Okay? In this day when authority is jettisoned and leadership is despised and everybody thinks that they're smart and everybody thinks that they should be obeyed, everybody still believes in leadership. They just think that they should be the leader. 
So we have a day of complete anarchy. It's like the days of the judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And biblically, what we see with Jesus, every team needs a leader. Number eight, big teams need a smaller team within the team. So Jesus has the 70, they're mentioned as a number in the Bible, the 12 that he's appointing as apostles. And within that team, he's got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Peter's the senior leader, but the inner team of leaders, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're listed together. They get special access to Jesus. They get special training from Jesus, and they make certain decisions that others don't get to make. So teams within the teams. Number nine, hurt before fruit. Who's on the team? Who's the last guy listed? Judas. That one hurt. Do you think it hurt Jesus? Years. Feeding this guy, loving this guy, training this guy, praying for this guy, investing this guy. This guy betrays you with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver so you can get murdered. That hurts. Do you think it hurt the disciples? Judas? We thought he was our friend. He was in our community group with Jesus. He murdered Jesus. Imagine somebody in your community group murders the leader of your community group. Does that affect the community group? Yeah. What in the world? It hurt. I think the disciples had some late night conversations. What happened with Judas? What, what happened? I mean, what? He was stealing money from our ministry the whole time? The guy was a con man? He didn't even love Jesus? You serious? It hurt. You think it hurt the followers? You think for a while there were rumblings? Maybe Judas is the bold one. Maybe Judas is the courageous one. Maybe Judas is like the Old Testament prophets and he's up against Jesus and the disciples because they're wrong. Religious people are already criticizing Jesus. Do you think they love Judas? Yeah, Judas, throw some rocks at him. We don't like him either. I'm not glad that he hung himself, but it did simplify things. Had Judas not hung himself... He, he might have started his own ministry, his own church, competed with the disciples. We could have had war. We could have had war. I'm so glad he didn't plant a church, start a ministry. Just go do somewhere else what he was doing with Jesus. See, there's sheep, there's shepherds, there's wolves. And some lead as shepherds, others lead as wolves. Judas was a wolf. It hurt. But in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, God did not make Judas sin. He sinned of his own accord. He was ripping Jesus off. He opened his heart to Satan. He has nobody to blame but himself. But in the providential sovereignty of God, God used it for good. Hurt became fruit. Genesis 50, 20 says that God will take what is intended for evil and use it for good in the saving of many lives. Judas's betrayal and murder of Jesus was intended for evil and God used it for good and the saving of many lives. A few billion of us today claim to be Christians and say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. God took the worst whore and made it the greatest gift. That's how God works, Romans 8. God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been absolutely devastated by someone who was supposed to be a friend? God could use that. God wants to use that 
so that it's not just hurt, but that hurt becomes fruit. You've been raped, work it through, help the rape victims. You've been cheated on, work it through, help those who have been sinned against. Your dad left, work it through, become a good dad, and train others to be good dads. Your spouse has committed adultery, work it through, help those who have been devastated by adultery. You got cancer, use it to help others who are battling cancer. Hurt becomes fruit. And I'll tell you, this is the painful part of ministry. I mean, I can honestly tell you, there are people I pray for every single day because it's just a deep, brutal, nonstop ache in my soul. No, man, that, I just, they're not walking with Jesus. They're shipwrecking their own life, doctrinally, maritally, sexually, financially, whatever it is. It's just bad. It just feels like a noose around the neck that they've picked. And they're determined to self-destruct. It hurts. And you want good for those people, but ultimately, God can turn the hurt into fruit. And that's a painful lesson for all leaders. Number 10, don't go diatrophies. And I know you were all thinking about this on the way in, so I thought I would hit it. <clears throat> You're like, yes, diatrophies. I've been meditating on that at great length. And I was wondering what our position was on diatrophies. Diatrophies is a guy who's only mentioned once in the Bible in one of the epistles written by John. And it says this, Diatrophies always wanted to be first. If they're going to put your name in the Bible for one thing, that's pretty sad. He was really proud, and he always wanted to have all the attention. Now, the truth is, some leaders will get attention. Some of us, more than we like, at least certain kinds of attention. But the sin of diatrophies is, I don't want to be on the team. I got to, I got to be the face of the team. I don't want to just humbly serve I want my name to be famous. And we live in that sort of celebrity addicted culture where people get famous who don't even do anything. Isn't that weird? You ever watch TMZ or pick up a People magazine? You're like, all these people are famous and they didn't do anything. I mean, some people are just famous. Like there's their dog in their handbag. And what did they do? Nothing. Why are they famous? Because we're desperate to talk about somebody. And the sin of diatrophies is, I want them to talk about me, not Jesus. Jesus chooses 12 apostles, but they all don't get the same press. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you read Acts together, Peter is mentioned 189 times. John, 50. Philip, 17. Andrew, 13. Thomas, 11. Matthew, also called Levi. Some of these guys have two names. Nine. James, the son of Alphaeus, seven. Thaddeus or Judas, he had two names, and you know why. There was two disciples with the name Judas. The other guy was really bummed, right? So what do you do? I'm an apostle. What's your name? Judas. Oh, I heard about you. No, I'm the other Judas. (laughs) Call me Thaddeus. I'm not rolling with Judas anymore. Simon the Zealot, Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, and is mentioned once. Simon the Zealot, four times Bartholomew, Nathaniel, same man, once. Judas Iscariot, 22. Here's the deal. Some of these people, like Peter, gets mentioned a lot. Others, hardly at all. Like, here's what I would tell you. You're, if you want to do a really simple Bible study, do one on Bartholomew. <laughs> right? 
You could tweet his whole life story because that's all we know. His name was Bartholomew. He was an apostle. I don't even need all the characters. That's all I got. We don't know much. Peter, we know, oh, he's impetuous, cut a guy's ear. Oh, we know lots about Peter. Thomas, he's the doubter. <laughs> Thomas is one bad day. That's the one day he made the press. <laughs> like, come on, man. I finished well. well yeah. He had a bad day. So we're just going to keep talking about that one. And other people we don't know anything about. So here's the deal. On a team, especially a good, diverse, weird team, some people are going to be real prominent, others less prominent. Some are going to get a lot of press time, others not so much. Be okay with that. Some of you, God's called you to be up front. Don't be cowards. Some of you, God's called to lead visibly, publicly. Don't be cowards. Others of you, that's not you. Be number two, be behind the scenes, be number three, help it happen, get it done. The truth is these guys were all doing important stuff. Some of them, we just don't know what it was because they weren't up front, they were behind the scenes. And you know what? That's important too. And I, and I say that with all sincerity. Number 11, last one, die with your boots on. It's a great close. Die with your boots on. You're either going to go out like Judas or Jesus. That's how your life is going to end. You're going to go out like Jesus, faithful to the end, whatever the cost, or you're going to go out like Judas, prematurely, tragically, rebelliously, shamefully. Every one of you is going to finish like Jesus or Judas. I want you to keep your boots on, finish strong, run your race, see it through to the end, be a completer, a finisher, a closer of the things God has given you to do. And as you read this, maybe you're like me, you may wonder, what happened to these guys? We know in the Bible they went forward. Some of them were cowards, but they toughened up. The resurrection put some steel in their spine. They preached, they taught, they planted churches. John wrote five books of the Bible. Peter wrote two. These guys did get some stuff done. But the Bible doesn't tell us how they finished. For that, we've got to go to history. Did they die with their boots on? And I'll read for you some of their stories historically from Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was first written in 1559, and it's fantastic. Gotta love the Puritans. James. Wonder how James died? The first apostle to suffer after the martyrdom of Stephen was James the brother of John. Clement tells us, when this James was brought to the tribunal seat, he that brought him and was the cause of his trouble, seeing him to be condemned and that he should suffer death, was in such, in such sort moved within heart and conscience that he went to the execution and confessed himself also of his own accord to be a Christian. And so were they led forth together, where in the way he desired of James to forgive him what he had done, after James had a little paused with himself upon the matter, turning to him, he said, Peace to thee, my brother, and kissed him. And both were beheaded in A.D. 36. James had a critic who wanted him murdered. He had a Judas. And on the way to be crucified, apparently he had some conversation with his Judas. And his Judas repented, said, I'm sorry. Let's get beheaded together for Jesus. And they did. James is a bad man in a good way. <laughs> Thomas. Thomas preached to the Parthians, Medes, Persians, Carmanians, Hyrcanians, Bactrians, and Magians. Say it fast and bold, and everybody thinks you're saying it right. 
He was killed in Kalamania, India. Most of these men died murderous martyrdom. But what happens is when people start giving their life for the cause of the gospel, all of a sudden, those who are playing church stop playing. They either step up for Jesus and go from come and see to go and die, or like Judas, they just walk away and go do something else. Simon. Simon, brother of Jude and James the Younger, who were all the sons of Mary Cleophas, and Alphaeus was bishop of Jerusalem after James, Jesus' brother. He was crucified in Egypt. Crucified. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it well, the old German. <clears throat> said, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Come and die. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, that's what it means to be a disciple that you go the way of Jesus. You give your life for what he gave his life to, the glory of God and the good of others for the church. The other Simon, the apostle, he was also crucified. Bartholomew is said to have preached in India and translated the gospel of Matthew into their tongue. He was beaten crucified and beheaded. Andrew. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified. Bernard and St. Cyprian mentioned the confession and martyrdom of this blessed apostle, partly from them and partly from other reliable writers. We gather the following material. When Andrew, through his diligent preaching, had brought many to the faith of Christ, Aegeus, the governor, asked permission of the Roman Senate to force all Christians to sacrifice to and honor the Roman idols. Andrew thought he should resist Aegeus and went to him, telling them that a judge of men should first know and worship his judge in heaven. While worshiping the true God, Andrew said, he should banish all false gods and blind idols from his mind. Furious at Andrew, Aegeus demanded to know if he was the man who had recently overthrown the temples of the gods and persuaded men to become Christians, a, quote, superstitious sect that had recently been declared illegal by the Romans. Andrew replied that the rulers of Rome didn't understand the truth. The Son of God who came into the world for man's sake taught that the Roman gods were devils, enemies of mankind, teaching men to offend God and causing him to turn away from them. By serving the devil, men fall into all kinds of wickedness, Andrew said, and after they die, nothing but their evil deeds are remembered. The proconsul ordered Andrew not to preach these things anymore or he would face a speedy crucifixion. If you were going to get crucified, would you stop calling yourself a Christian? Whereupon Andrew replied, I, and this is an amazing line, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. He was condemned to be crucified for teaching a new sect and taking away the religion of the Roman gods. Andrew, going toward the place of execution and seeing the cross waiting for him, Never changed his expression, neither did he fail in his speech. His body fainted not, nor did his reason fail him, as often happens to men about to die. He said, O cross, most welcome and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you being the scholar of him, which did hang on you, because I have always been your lover and yearn to embrace you. You boys want to crucify me? There's a good spot. Go for it. I belong to Jesus. Matthew. 
Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews in the Hebrew tongue after he had converted Ethiopia and all Egypt. Hyrcanius, the king, sent someone to kill him with a spear. Philip. After years of preaching to the barbarous nations, Philip was stoned, crucified, and buried with his daughter, Peter. The first of the 10 persecutions was stirred up by Nero about 64 AD. His rage against Christians was so fierce that Eusebius records, quote, a man might then see cities full of men's bodies, the old lying together with the young, and the dead bodies of women cast out naked without reverence of that sex in the open streets. Many Christians in those days thought that Nero was the Antichrist because of his cruelty and abominations. The apostle Peter was condemned to death during this persecution. Although some say that he escaped, it is known that many Christians encouraged him to leave the city. And the story goes that as he came to the city gates, Peter saw Jesus coming to meet him. Lord, where are you going? Peter asked. I am coming again to be crucified, was the answer. Seeing that his suffering was understood, Peter turned around, returned to the city, where Jerome tells us he was crucified upside down at his own request, saying he was not worthy to be crucified the same way his Lord was. Lastly, John. The second persecution began during the reign of Domitian, the brother of Titus. Domitian exiled John to the island of Patmos. It's an actual spot, and I've been there. But on Domitian's death, John was allowed to return to Ephesus in the year AD 70. He remained there until the reign of Trajan, governing the churches of Asia and writing his gospel until he died at about the age of 100. But at 100, he may have had a lot of scars on his body because before they exiled him, they tried to kill him. They boiled him alive. And he lived through it. So they exiled him for a while. He got out and wrote books of the Bible as a boiled old man. We're glad you come and see. You need to go and die. Father God, I pray for us as a people. We're in a day where we get a lot of come and see. There's free sermons on the internet, classes, trainings, Christian music, radio stations, radio preachers, church events, mass crusades, services, small groups. It seems, Lord God, like there are more come and see opportunities than any people have ever been offered in the history of the world. And God, we rejoice in the come and see opportunities. We rejoice that people come to hear the Bible and see lives changed through Jesus. But God, I pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit and the hearts and minds and lives of our people, that they would respond to your call to become Christians, that they would respond to your call to persevere as Christians, that they would give like Christians should give, that they would serve like Christians should serve, that they would suffer like Christians should suffer, that they should testify like Christians should suffer. That Lord God, I pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit on us as a people that we wouldn't just be a come and see people, that we'd be a go and die people in Jesus' name.